0: Philippians chapter 3, we're going to read verses 1 through 11. This is God's holy word written for our instruction. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, If you look at your resume and you had one item on that resume, most employers wouldn't even look at your resume anymore and may not consider you for a job, especially if that one, resu- uh, that one item on the resume didn't have what money would consider to be important for that job. But imagine if you had your resume listed with a bunch of qualifications that many would look at as as having the necessary requirements for the job description. And you got rid of that resume and put one item. In our passage today, that's essentially what Paul is describing. Before we get into that, though, I just want to note verse 1. It says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. I am not unaware that much of what I say today will probably not be news to most of you. Nothing new, I hope, will be new. But it is always a good reminder. Paul is outlining in his letter much of what the Philippians have already heard from his own lips. But he's writing them again and says, To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. It's safe for all of us. It's necessary. We need to hear the truth over and over and over again for our own safety. It is not superficial or redundant, but necessary. In in a way, repeated truth is the lifeblood of our souls. It's the IV line that keeps us connected and sustains our hearts. So as we approach this text, as we look at what God is saying through Paul, let the repeated truth be a lifeline for you as you hear again what God outlines as the importance of what we need today. So Paul says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. What, what is he writing? Look out for the dogs, verse 2. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, and if you're sitting there reading and you say, well, look out for the dogs, it's not really a politically correct or nice term. It's not really one you would find in, you know, how to win friends and influence people. Look out for the dogs. Dogs were not the household pets in ancient Israel. They were mongrels. They w- walked around trash heaps. They were not your friendly, cuddly animals you see in women's purses at grocery stores today. <laughs> these, are, these are disgusting animals. And Paul says, look out for the dogs. What kind of dogs? Look out for the evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh, referring to people who emphasize circumcision, who, who see circumcision as those who are, or as a means by which you gain righteousness with God. But then he says in verse 3, "...we are the circumcision, not of externals," he says, "...but look who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh." So he says, "...look out for those who mutilate the flesh, look out for the dogs, those evildoers, because we are the circumcision, who are not on an external, but look who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh." Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Just in case we think that Paul saying, put no confidence in the flesh is is just a way of saying, Well, we don't really have anything to be confident in the flesh, so it's like saying, you know, I don't I don't, you know, I'm not proud of my Rolls Royce. You don't have a Rolls Royce, Silas, it's not really yours to be proud of. But Paul says, No, I I have reason to put confidence in the flesh. I have more reason than anyone else. You want to look at a righteous person? I'm more than him. And he gives a list, verse four or, uh, verse 5. Circumcised on the eighth day, right according to the law. Followed it to a T. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. That first part. Th- this is Paul's resume. This is everything he's he's got to achieve the job qualification of righteousness before God. It's the shining pinnacle of spiritual superiority. The first little act, uh, the first three are are just lists of of his pedigree, if you will. He's a true breed Jew. He didn't walk in and, and, and get a name card that eventually let him become a Jew. He was a Jew from the very beginning, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, through which Saul was the first king, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I am it. This is, this is royal lineage. He says, as to law, a Pharisee. So not only does he have a pedigree, he has an action. So it, it wasn't just as if he was one of those kids who's like, yeah, my dad's the king of England, but, you know, whatever. This is, I, I have zeal. As the law, I'm a Pharisee. A Pharisee was one who, who was so concerned about the law, they memorized most, if not all, of the Old Testament. They made uh, rules to follow the law. So as an example, if the if the the law said don't work on Sunday, or, or on the Sabbath, rather, then they're going to make sure that they don't even play on, on Sunday, lest it be considered a, a, an exhibit of disobeying the Sabbath. A lot of us tend to give Pharisees a lot of flack, but the, the desire, even if it became hypocritical and, and superficial, was to live the law, to obey the law. And Paul wasn't just someone who observed the law like someone who says, I'm Catholic but doesn't even go to Mass. Is, is, is observing law to the nth degree. Unless you think it was just out of rote uh, desire, he says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Now, it's not something he's proud of. He's just given an example of zeal. That he wasn't someone who sat in an armchair and just read the, old, the Torah all day. He went out and he endeavored to live this with a passion, if you read through any of Paul's letters, you'll see that he is one marked by zeal. And so his zeal for the law and obeying it and living out his pedigree of, of Jewishness is continued as a persecutor of the law, or a persecutor of the church. And then if you missed it, at his long line, he just tells you, as to righteousness under the law, I'm blameless. If, if you're looking at the law, I did it all. I, I lived this. I, was, I am living. I dotted every T. If we were to use a football metaphor, Paul says, as to position, I'm the quarterback. I make the game happen. As to my team, we win the Super Bowl every time. As to my playing, I'm the starter and I make the pro Bowl every time. As to value, I'm the MVP. All the time, every time. Paul's saying he's the best of the best. But it's a step more than that. He's not just saying he's better than Tom Brady or, or, or any other quarterback. He's saying he's the best possible religious person this world has ever met. In the things that matter most, you're standing with God. Paul had achieved every mark by which someone had laid out the standard to follow. He was part of God's chosen people. He did everything right from the beginning. As a kid, he was basically perfect, being circumcised on the eighth day. As to the law, a Pharisee, a person in high position, basically known for being perfect. As to zeal, basically perfect in zeal, because I'm doing what God expects, rooting out blasphemers. So we're thinking, Paul, we get it, you're basically perfect. But just in case you missed it, he goes, no, 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 I'm basically perfect, blameless under the law. He's not saying, I'm blameless, but if we're going to judge me by the law, I'm blameless. And in his day, Paul points out that he's not only aware of what the standard was for being a good Jew, he surpassed it and then some. And his point to anyone asking, any way you look at it with right standing with God, I already had it. Unless we think that it's only Paul who tends to get to that standard, too often Christianity gets boiled down to a list of do's and don'ts, especially if you grew up in the church. There, there's, a, there's an idea that if you follow this and obey everything laid out in the Bible, then you are a better Christian than the person who doesn't. That there's, there's a level of external observance. Being a follower of Jesus is more about moral uprightness than a concern for internal conviction. I mean, imagine someone who, who talks to you and says, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian. As to history, I'm, I'm a third-generation Christian. As to Bible knowledge, I aced WANA, and now I'm memorizing books of the Bible. As to passion for Jesus, I went on three missions trips. As to church attendance, good sir, I was born in the church. As to zeal, I walked through a church, to church through a double blizzard, and when I found out they canceled, I went and evangelized the next two doors, uh, neighborhoods with Bible in hand, door to door. And as to righteousness under the law, I did everything my church, my pastors, my mentors, and anyone else asked of me. I'm basically perfect. I'm, of course I'm a good Christian. And we chuckle. But there's a level of which, if we're not careful, a desire to love the law that God has given us becomes a standard by which we judge our fellow brothers and sisters. Well, did you, did you see? Uh, I, I prayed for you this week. You're welcome. <laughs> It's, we wouldn't say it like that, but it can easily come along if we're not careful that we develop our own resume of Christianity, a standard by which we live. I, I fell, to pray, fell prey to this very often growing up as a Christian in church, that the blessings I savored were merits I earned. I went to Bible college You'd think Bible college where you spend that much time observing God and his greatness as you unpack scripture and truths that blow your mind was one where I saw arrogance ripped through my own heart and ones of my friends as well. So before we go, Paul, Paul, that doesn't matter. Be careful. We have to. I all too easily... Let pride slip into my heart. Many of us could write our own Christian resume. But look at what Paul says in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss. There's a conjunction here, a transition. says, this is all that I had before in all its greatness and grandeur, that every Jew would be envious of. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Notice the whatever. He says, whatever gain I had, I count as loss. He emphasizes this in verse 8. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss for the sake of Christ. Just a clarification here on, on the words he's using much to the thrill of my accounting wife, Paul's using accounting language. So if you were to mark his, his life as a Jew, it's, it's the gains column. And then if you look at what he has now, it's, it's the loss column. And what Paul does is he flips it and he says, no, actually this gains column is now a loss column. And this loss column is now a gains column. And everything that I gained, that I lived for, that I valued, that I fought for, that I strived after is now a loss to me. Why? Paul, there's, there's so much there. What, what is, you mean everything? He says, yes, no exceptions. Whatever gain I had, I count as loss. and there's a very and we'll get to why in just a second but this is not just a loss he says i count them as rubbish not just that it's it's lost me i want to be far away from it the the word they're actually used in greek is dung feces it's hard to get the, the seriousness here, but Paul is saying that everything he lived for, everything he counted once as righteousness before is rubbish. You get away from feces. You get away from the rubbish. You get rid of it. You get it as far away from anything. You don't want it to touch anything. You don't want to be near it. That kind of disgustingness smells horrible, looks horrible, and is a pile that ruins everything. And that's exactly what Paul is trying to convey here. I count everything as loss. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He wanted to gain Christ. Why? To be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Faith. Paul had a righteousness that comes from the law, a a right way of living. But he saw that to have a right way of living is also to hold the keys of death in his hand because a righteous living does nothing when you face God. Being a good person matters nothing. And this isn't Paul going, well, I was a trashy person, but you know, Being a good person matters nothing. He was, in every standard by which someone could measure him, a good person, good enough. And Paul says, I count that as loss because I want to be found in Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own because that falls so short. Imagine trying to get from here to Albany in one jump. You could be the greatest long jumper in the world, trained for ever be the, win all the gold medals at the Olympics, maybe even clear 35, 40, 50 yards, you still got a few miles to get to Albany. And that's the standard by which we are all measured. Because not having a righteousness of my own, that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, this is literally the gospel in that Paul says, this is what I had before, and it's nothingness. It matters nothing when you don't have Jesus. Because I was a sinner. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we would receive the righteousness of God. While we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. That is the level of love that God has given that we were standing sinners condemned, and yet we walk away justified, not because of a list of completed goals and accomplishments, but because of Jesus. He did it. And if Paul is anything but found in Jesus, then he is nothing, But his desire is to be found in him so that the one who is the just and the justifier, namely Christ, is who his righteousness depends on. So he suffers the loss of all things to gain Christ. Here in the middle of our passage is the one thing. If you walk away from anything and forget everything I say today, hear this. Paul wanted to count everything as lost because it's a passing worth of knowing Jesus. That must be the heart cry of every Christian. He says... I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. And what is the result? But now it's justified. What happens after justification? He says that I may know him. I want to know Jesus. I don't want to know about him. I don't want to hear what he may be like. I want to know him. I want to have a relationship with him. I want to know what he's like. I want to be like him. I want to know the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Do you know Jesus? If there was anything, Paul shared the gospel with anyone because Jesus is everything to him. It didn't matter if you were chained to him or walking by him or rebuking him. It was Jesus and only Jesus. Jesus. Because he counted everything as loss. It's not going to help me. It's a loss. It's a detriment to me for the gain of Christ. And if Jesus is only okay to you, then this loss will seem great. But if Jesus is surpassing everything you could ever imagine, then this loss is small. Paul is like the man who found a great treasure in the field and went and sold everything to buy it. For Paul, Jesus is everything. Because Jesus is the only way to life. Jesus is the only way to salvation. Jesus is the only one worth living for. The rest of it is meaningless. It's rubbish. He wants Jesus. Paul says what that old spiritual saying. Give me Jesus, give me Jesus. You can have all this world, just give me Jesus. So often there are little things that distract us, that pull us away, pretty things. The devil doesn't need you to be holy against Jesus. He just needs you to be indifferent. He doesn't need you to be hating God. He just needs you to not care to just get distracted by doing nice things, good things for God. I served in ministry. I'm, of course I know Jesus. I go to church. Of course I know Jesus. I read my Bible. It's not enough because it will never be enough if it depends on you. It must be Jesus Jesus. There are good things in this world. Friendship, love, marriage. But if that's what we live for, it's not enough. I love my wife. But if my wife is the one that I live for, the one that I do everything for, even if I do it as a nice benefit to her, if she is more to me than Jesus, she is an idol that is distracting me from Jesus. This is the same thing in Hebrews 12 when it says, we lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us that we may run the race set before us with endurance, fixing our eyes on Jesus. This is a race and your life depends on it. Run the race with endurance. Paul says, I want to know Christ. How? He says, first, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. The power of his resurrection. If you were in Sunday school this morning, you already got a taste of what I'm about to say, so if you're not in Sunday school next week, you might want to get a taste of the sermon there, too. Uh, but the power of his resurrection. In in chapter chapter 4 of Romans, you can turn there or or just listen. It says... But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, Abraham's, but for us also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Too often in church it becomes, oh yeah, Jesus rose from the dead. Rose from the dead are some pretty impressive four words if you stop and think about it. When was the last time you saw someone rise from the dead? Last week or so, or your entire life? Death surrounds us. So the fact that someone robbed death is impressive. Not just impressive, should blow our minds. Silas Translation. He says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 12, when he wrestled with the thorn, says, "Remove the thorn, and God says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The same God who raised Jesus from the dead is the same God who lives in us, who gives us the power to know him. The power of his resurrection is the one who, as he, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, is not just that Christ has been raised, but that we will be raised with him. If you turn and, and becoming like him in his death is the next part. It's the power of his resurrection. If you look at Romans 6, go ahead and turn there with me, just briefly. Romans 6, starting in verse 5. Or sorry, starting in verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. O death, where is your sting? The sting of death has been swallowed up in the victory of Jesus. The power of the resurrection is what Paul did everything for. If you read through Acts, the reason for what Paul suffers is the power of the resurrection. Because too often we see this life as all there is. The world sells it out as, do the best if you can. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If this is all there is, make the most of it. But Paul says, no, no. The power of the resurrection says there's more to come. There's more beyond this. We have a few short years and then eternity awaits and that's what I'm waiting for. That's what I'm living for. I want to know Jesus so that I'm found in him and I want to know Christ so that I know his resurrection. That I know that there is is life beyond this life. The power of his resurrection. And then he says, I may share his sufferings. Oh, Paul. Paul. I uh, I followed you up to the No Christ and the I I want to uh, share his power but um you want to suffer? What's wrong with you, Paul? But Paul is not a sadist who just looks for pain. He says, "I want to share his sufferings, not because he wants the suffering, but what the suffering produces." Because when we suffer well, we suffer like Jesus, we know Christ more. We become more like Christ. We are conformed to his image. In a way, suffering is the chisel that shapes us, our our stony hearts into the image of Christ. It knocks away the old rock and leaves us more in his image. Because when Paul shares in his sufferings, He still has Christ. So often it's easy to forget the value of Jesus in the midst of pain. I don't pretend to know what any of you are going through. But Jesus did. He has the scars to prove it. Paul doesn't just say I count it as loss and it doesn't matter to me in comparison to Jesus. He says, I suffered the loss of all things. He went through intense pain, not simply because he just left this nice glamorous life and it doesn't change anything and it's not hard anymore, but actually he suffers the loss of all things because even this suffering that he goes through pales when Jesus is his everything. We sang it earlier. I once was lost in darkest night and thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. But as I ran my hellbound race, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. Even in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your suffering, Jesus is your everything. And whether the the brilliance of the joys of this world are enticing you to forget Jesus or the suffering of this world is making you doubt his presence, Paul says, even in the midst of having everything or losing everything, I have found the secret of being content. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I have suffered the loss of all things because of the surpassing worth of Jesus that I may know Jesus, even in pain, even in joy. Jesus is everything. It is, he is so much more than getting summed up as a good teacher or a list of rules. He is a person who is raised from the dead and we will be raised with him having his righteousness. In essence, Paul moves from justification, a a right standing with God, to sanctification, a growing in Christ likeness, and then looks to the one day of glorification when we will one day be raised with him. He says, I want to be... Gain Christ to be found in him that I may know him and by knowing him the power of his resurrection and sharing in his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. In the way that Paul lives his life he looks to the end. We cannot miss The importance of the end as Christians. We are the only ones who grieve with hope, who mourn with joy, who weep with rejoicing, because we know that this is not the end. Jesus said in Matthew 6 where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And if you have your treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, you will be disappointed. But if Jesus is your treasure, if Jesus is your pearl of great price, if Jesus is your joy, if Jesus is your hope, if Jesus is your everything so that you can say, All I have is Christ, whether it's in comparison or in reality you will never find him lacking. The resurrection of the dead is what we live for. Everything should be that calling because in case you think, well, that was Paul's story, he says in verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me. This is for all of us. This is the heart cry of the Christian. He let go of the things that don't satisfy, that will never compare to the perfection and fullness of God, including what he spent his life trying to obtain and perfect. That's all done away with. Now he has Jesus. I already touched on this, but to reiterate, it is not enough to sit in church and to listen to the sermons, attend small groups, or even serve in ministries. Even be nice to people. Is Jesus everything to you? Before you answer, listen to what your heart is honestly saying. I'll be honest with you: as I was preparing for this week, I spent a lot of time evaluating my heart. And uh, when you get downwind of yourself, sometimes you can smell some awful stenches. And it, I went back to this passage again and again. Recognizing that even when I don't love him like I ought and I don't value him as surpassing worth, he still come, I can still come back to the cross and find grace. It is the recharge that comes back and says, and, and repowers my pursuit of Jesus. Not because I desire to earn anything or, or to, to boast before you. I have nothing to offer any of you. But I have Jesus. And Jesus is everything. We live right lives not because we desire to earn grace, but because we have grace. And that is the passion, the energy, the motor that drives our cars of Christianity. That when anyone looks at you, they say there's something different. What is it? And the simple answer is Jesus. Is Jesus everything to you? We must be able to say, I count everything as lost because it's the passing worth of Christ. Valuing Christ more than anything and living that out. It is not enough to say, yes, I value Jesus. And also, I don't want to give up this or yes, I value Jesus most of the time. I want to know Jesus. We must all say, like Paul, I want to be found in him that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. We are all here with one goal. In the midst of the frustrations that you will often experience, even from the people in this room, our mutual goal should be to encourage one another to that one aim of pursuing Christ to the end, faithful to the end, pursuing that one goal of knowing God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for the grace that is ours. The righteousness that you gave us. The joy that you have given us in Jesus. That even in the midst of pain or the temptation of of loving pleasure more than you, you gave us righteousness and grace calling us back to a pursuit of you with everything in us. So Lord, I ask that you would use each and every person here to draw closer to you. That if they don't know you, they would begin the journey of knowing you more. And if they do know you, that they would continue to know you with even more zeal and passion of a transformed life that has experienced the righteousness of God and lives in light of it. Use us, Lord. Remind us of the cross and keep our eyes fixed on glory that day when you come back to take us home. That is what we live for, Lord, and long for. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. Help us believe you to be our everything and live with the pursuit of you. In Jesus' mighty faithful name we pray. Amen.